Hey everybody, welcome to the Creative Processing Podcast. My name is Joe Gordon-Levitt. The idea of this show is to have a conversation about the creative process. The conversation is inspired by one single solitary question. That question comes from you out there asking intelligent questions. And then I find a guest who I think would be good at answering the question. My guest this week is someone I'm really, really, really excited about. Uh, I don't get starstruck per se I've been fortunate to be around a lot of incredible artists and we've we've had a few really incredible artists on this podcast but this this guy I just I admire his his mind so incredibly much starstruck is the wrong word to use because uh, I've been fortunate to become friends with him over the last number of years his name is Jaron Lanier he is a technologist computer scientist He's also an incredible artist, musician, and a writer. My first exposure to him was his books, and I really recommend all of his books. His first one is called You Are Not a Gadget. His second one is called Who Owns the Future. He wrote a memoir called Dawn of the New Everything, which is sort of half memoir, half about virtual reality because he was a, a pioneer in the early days of virtual reality. And then uh, his latest book is called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. It's a blunt title, but one that uh, the, the book is so thoughtful, and I really recommend it if you've ever had that experience of you know spending a few minutes on Instagram or Twitter and then wondering, why do I feel anxious? Why do I feel bad? I really recommend reading that book, and I, I have found it really illuminating. Um, he's also just an incredibly funny and fun guy. And just an extraordinary conversation. I, I wish I could have talked to him for days. And uh, it was delightful. And um, so his, you know, the, this this conflagration of this incredible creative mind with his technological kind of computer scientist mind, I think, made him perfect to answer the following question. Uh, this week's question came from Chrissy Regler from Dorset, England. I'm just going to take a moment to say Chrissy is awesome. This is someone I actually... I, I've never met personally, but I feel like I know her very well because she's a big contributor on Hit Record and uh, excellent artist, excellent just person. So hello, Chrissy, and thanks for this great question. She asked, <clears throat> how do you feel the digital era has changed our creative process? I have a lot of thoughts on this. I just mentioned Chrissy, you know, I know through Hit Record, um, I try not to spend too much time on this podcast plugging hit record, but it's something I spend a lot of my time on and thinking about, and it is exactly that. It's you know, how can digital technology be used in a way to have a positive impact on our creativity? Uh, I think there's you know, obviously a million different ways, and Jaron and I get into it, that new digital technology has had positive impact on my creative process and probably, you know, humanity in general's creative process. There are also some negative downsides, and, and Jaron's really well equipped to speak about those. So I'm going to uh, just get to it. I, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Ladies and gentlemen, Jaron Lanier. Jaron Lanier, thanks for being here, man. I am so thrilled to be here. <laughs> um, I am 
I am very thrilled to talk to you. I don't. <laughs> I, I've I've had some um, notable guests in the uh, arts and entertainment, but with you, I am uh, sincerely starstruck. Even though we're good friends and I've known you for years now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awfully kind of you, Joe. Uh, okay. Yeah. So. Um, so as I told you, the idea here is for me to ask a question that I think you will have a lot of thoughts about, and then we'll go from there. Ready for the question? I am. Okay. Uh, this is from Chrissy Regler from Dorset, England, and she asks, how do you feel the digital era has changed our creative process? Oh, uh-huh. So I'll let huh. you take a first stab at that, and then we'll... We'll go off on any number of tangents, I'm sure. Oh, man. Well, you know, it's changed a lot. I mean, the funny thing about this kind of question is that life is multifarious, you know, and some things are ancient and change very slowly and other things can change a lot. So it's it's easy, it's very easy to either overstate an answer to a question like that or understate it. Um, I'm going to err on the side of overstating yeah, <laughs> my answer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I would, I would, I think that's because that's it's the tenor of our times, after all, to <laughs> overstate the influence of our technology, isn't it? Okay, True. so um, let, let's let's just cover the basics. What are some ways it's changed? One way it's changed is that the tools do more to the art than they used to. That okay. tools have always made art. The fact that some new pigment would become available, would transform painting in the past. That's true. However, the fact that you can have an algorithm that structures how you paint transforms it even more. And that's happened especially in music, which is the art form I know the most about, which I can speak about with the most experience behind it. And then... Um, yeah, do you want to actually, just bef- just jogging back for a sec, do you want to sure. spend a second talking about your own creativity before you... <laughs> Because it's so multifaceted. You're a technologist, you're a musician, you're a storyteller. What, what is, you know, this question is about the creative process and, and digital tech. What does the creative I, process mean to you? Uh, maybe my creative process is to do enough things that I can never keep the whole of what I'm doing in mind and in that way avoid having to deal with myself to some degree. I'm, I'm not sure. Or answer pesky but... questions in an interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I do enjoy frustrating inter- in my interviewers, and <laughs> and I see the thing is I like you, and I'm not I don't feel the same sort of vague sense of gamesmanship and antagonism that I often feel when I'm being interviewed. So I, now I I regret the decisions I've made that will make this a harder process for both of us. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, okay, one thing I do is I write books. Another thing I do is I do music. Another thing I do is I'm a scientist and I do computer science and math, and then I also do politics and advocacy and economics to try to make the world less horrible. (laughs) I guess that's a lot of the stuff I've, in the past... You have thousands of musical instruments in your house everywhere. Yes. Like, in the kitchen sink, (laughs) there's an oud (laughs) from the 17th century, and the only reason it's there in the kitchen sink is because the other 15 ouds are, like, (laughs) overflowing from the oud shelf. What is an oud, by the way? It's the it's the predecessor to the lute. It's one of the the root mother instruments of the string world. It's uh it looks like a, a lute, you know, it's got a round back and kind of a pear shaped overall feeling and uh it's uh 
usually fretless. And it, I know this because I'm friends with you. I, I wouldn't have known what an oud was otherwise. Well, they're a pretty big deal in the Middle East, and, and right. they're they're wonderful and intimate to play. They just holding a nude is like holding a baby. It's like this very delicate thing that's a little hard to hold because of how it's round in the back. It's not like a guitar that you can just slam against your your chest. You know, you have to be careful with it. And it's a very intimate experience to play it. It doesn't have frets, so it's like a violin. You have to really pay attention. And there's something about it. It's hard to explain, but it, it um, of all the instruments I play, it's one of the ones that just. I feel like I'm in touch with something greater than myself and something ancient. And now I feel like I'm sounding like a new age ninny, so I'll just stop with that. Well, one of the things that I love about talking with you about musical instruments (laughs) is, and this connects to our question of how the digital era changes the creative process, is I've heard you say before how musical instruments are kind of the, the best example of good user interface. Right, right. Well, see, that's the thing is that in my life as a computer scientist, I've been really concerned with user interfaces. And I approximately started the field of virtual reality. I say approximately because I'm sometimes called the father of it. And of course, there were lots of other people. And so in virtual reality, what we're trying to do is make the best possible user interface for people with computer things. And then I play something like an oud, and if only there was one as old as from the 17th century. Unfortunately, we don't have ouds that old, but we have some from the 19th century. Okay. And I have one that's 100 years old anyway, which is something. Uh, and <laughs> That's not the one in the sink. <laughs> no, that's not. The <laughs> there is not actually an oud in a sink in my house. Just I'm pretty to... sure I've seen an oud in, in the sink. It might not be there today. Oh, okay. There could have been one at one time. <laughs> like, but but just, just to be fair, that's not to say that there would typically be an oud in a sink. Yeah, okay. I mean, I just, fair enough, I just fair feel that you, you should be... This is journalism, man, and you shouldn't just go around exaggerating. You're right. You know? I'm exaggerating. I'm, I'm being hyperbolic for ratings, and I apologize. <laughs> right, right. And and uh, indeed, the back of the oud has a hyperbolic shape in some cases. But let us <laughs> let us <laughs> let us move on from that. So the thing is, um, why can't I make something that's digital that has that same amazing sensitive quality that an oud, or for that matter, a cello or a clarinet has? Like what? What is that elusive thing? Is mm-hmm. the physicality? Is it just the many generations in which these acoustic instruments evolve to get better and better and closer to the body? There, there are a lot of things, but I think the main thing that stands in our way is that in order to make something digital, you have to put software in it. In order to make software, you have to embed your ideas, and then you're sort of swimming in your own sea of ideas, which is a weird narcissistic thing to do. Uh-huh. Like, I mean, <laughs> like, of course, the, the ideas of people influence what violins and, and clarinets are shaped like and, and all that, but the ideas aren't themselves the things you're playing. It's, it's, it's this shape of material that might have been influenced by ideas, but you're directly interfacing with reality itself. You're like at the quantum level, you're slamming right up against the physical nature of the universe every time you play an acoustic instrument. Physically. And, that's, that's, I mean, perhaps an yeah. interesting uh, idea about how digital tech changes creativity is it becomes, like you say, maybe more about ideas. Like when you're you know, when you're searching through sounds that you want to sample and loop in some kind of, you know, digital music making environment, that's a more heady exercise than putting your hands on a cello or a clarinet, like you say, and and playing something with your body. Is that, I don't know, is that a fair distinction well, to make, do you think? Even even more than that, uh, for instance, 
some of the most popular tools today for making music, and I'm tempted to say all of them kind of emphasize a regular beat and kind of emphasize looping, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that almost everybody who makes music does it with one of the standard computer tools, and all of those tools make it a lot easier to do things if you're on a regular beat and if you loop. And so uh, we have a lot of music with regular beats and looping. Now, if you listen to somebody play acoustically, it can be pretty regular, but it's not exactly regular. The, the rhythm is breathing. There's more information in there. There's You can feel the person's body, and you can feel it varying like the weather or like your own body, and you, you, you enter into some kind of a commonality with that person that's just not there. Now, I'm not saying that looping is bad, <laughs> and, and yeah. I want to I emphasize that. This is not an aesthetic or value judgment about looping. I'm just observing that the tool is having a more literal and, and in a way almost a kind of a petty or underhanded influence on you as compared to previous tools, you know? Now, and do you think that that generalizes to how for the entire digital era and how it has impacted the creative process? Well, I know more about music than some of the other things because, like, I've I've never made a whole movie as you have. I've only been consultants on them, and so I, it's a little harder for me to say in those cases. I mean, for me, it's, it's the it seems to me if we were going to talk about how has the digital era impacted movie making, it's just made it a lot more accessible. Like editing is such a big part of movie making, and up until a few decades ago, if you wanted to edit footage, film footage or video footage or whatever, you had to have a massively expensive and very difficult to operate set of machines in order to edit. And now you can do it. I mean, you could do it on your phone. Now it's so easy to just to cut video. And that would seem to me, I don't know if I could really identify a downside to that. That sounds like that's just good to make it that much easier for people to, to get creative and edit video footage together. Recently, I looked at some movies that I hadn't seen since my, God, my teens, I guess, or maybe even younger, that meant a great deal to me way back then. I'm dating myself now. And I'm thinking particularly of the Kubrick movies, mm-hmm. 2001 and uh, Clockwork Orange. So good. And they have really long shots. I mean, yeah. you have you have these incredibly long shots. And while I was watching them, I was thinking, you know, in those days, if he'd said, okay, I want 100 cuts in there he might have gotten 100 cuts in his body from an editor who's saying, yeah, you know, <laughs> I'll give you 100 cuts, you know. And I, I wonder if, the, if just the sheer labor involved had a bit of an influence on the pacing of movies because there, there was a uh, – they, they had to put in a lot of work in setting up a shot. And it's not that they were lazy. I mean, he used to reshoot scenes over and over and over again. But on the other hand, there was just this kind of weight or this this gravitas to each shot. And this, the idea of, of it being lasting on the screen a long time might have made a little more sense than a situation where you, all you have to do is press this button and then you can cut and cut and cut and cut and cut. It's really true. And in fact, you are sort of – I just said I couldn't identify a downside. But you could say that – Nowadays, movie making, there's not generally the same consideration put into the writing, the acting, the composition. If we're generalizing, this is obviously a generalization generalizing. because <laughs> you find it in the edit. You kind of shoot a bunch of stuff and then you sit down in the edit room and you've like, okay, I have all this footage. And then a lot of the art happens in the assembly and in that editing process, whereas, you know, the examples you're identifying, Stanley Kubrick, and that's the case for filmmakers, you know, tons of filmmakers, whether it's, you know, uh, 
Howard Hawks or Gene Kelly, uh, they're not thinking of it in terms of we'll find it in the edit. The edit is an important step to like the kind of important final step to take the art that we've made and make sure that it's all flowing right. But they're not going to sit down and like figure out how they want to tell their story in the editing room, whereas that is a lot of what happens now. So can I give you another example? Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't think it's universally true. Usually the scripts for Pixar movies are very well wrought, you know, very carefully yeah. done uh, with many, many rewrites. And they kind of become very moving and kind of extraordinarily well done, in my opinion. Love Pixar movies. And, and part of the reason for that, I suspect, is it's just so much work to shoot on a script that they that they just uh, in other words, what I'm saying is that making things easy always has a downside. I'm not saying that it shouldn't happen. I'm lazy myself, and I love mm-hmm. easy things. But all I'm saying is that to pretend that you can make something easy without losing some of your focus and discipline is always a fallacy. There's always going to be a trade-off. That's fascinating. Um, making things easy always has a downside. Oh, yeah. But that doesn't no, mean because- we shouldn't do it. No, yep. no, of course not. I think we right. should just be conscious of it and yeah. choose. We should we should choose our laziness carefully. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> now, now let me give you um, an upside to what I was talking about, or not an upside, but an aesthetic success example with um, this digital things making uh, looping easier and all that. Yeah. So. Um, I, I was around when looping was invented. Um, a lot of the people who started using samples and loops and drum machines, initially, I just thought it sounded like the blandest, most dead music I'd ever heard. And a lot mm-hmm. of the early New Age music is like that, and a lot of the early yeah. sort of trancey music is like that. But then hip-hop happened. And to me, what happened with hip-hop is that you have the rapper raging against this constant beat, and the constant the loop becomes the bars of a jail. You know, it's, it's your jail cell. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. and so there's this way that the 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 constancy of the digital thing and this whole technical apparatus becomes this cage that the rapper can then rage against. So you have the rappers becoming freer and freer and more and more human when the music becomes more robotic, and you hear that tension. Uh-huh. And I I feel like it becomes a metaphor for the way the society is moving. And suddenly it not only works but it really works. And I, I'm, I'm not saying that any rapper ever consciously did that. It's just how I'm hearing it. They might say, oh, God, that guy doesn't get it, and that they might be right. But anyway, that's the way it sounded to me. Well, when you say that and that's <laughs> representative of how the whole society is moving, how do, how do you mean? Well, so um, what happens is it's not just within the confines of your computer where you're editing your movie or your music, but then in the way you communicate with other people. The whole thing's been regimented in a similar way by social media and all that. And I I sort of fear repeating myself because I've talked about the problems of social media a great deal, but people themselves become like that loop or like that, that easy cut that you can make that we were talking about in editing a movie now. Mm-hmm. People get grouped together automatically by the algorithms so that they can be advertised against, and then it's really easy to uh, follow or like or diss or whatever it is that you do to whatever terms you use on the given social media thing. And when people themselves become <laughs> the medium that's being edited, which is exactly what happens with social media, they themselves take on that same quality of the loop. People tend to become repetitive and robotic and cranky and all that. I mean, the whole society has shifted that way into this kind of weirdly predictable, repetitive, kind of infinitely boring conversation in which each person is trying to get some attention or get their digs in or something. And there's this, there's this very... Well, look, I, I love how you speak about social media in general. I've found it very inspiring and I've read your 
earlier book, You Are Not a Gadget, spoke about this. And then I particularly found a ton of inspiration in, in the book, Who Owns the Future, which talks about sort of the, the economic impact of the, the sort of free service combined with mass surveillance and advertising business model. And then your, your recent book on social media, which is very clearly titled, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. I love that book. I recommend it to everybody. But I, I, I'm actually curious to dive into that a bit more specifically in terms of this question, because you speak about how social media impacts our whole world, our psychology, our, our, our economics, our government, etc. But, you know, so this question from Chrissy Regler was about how it impacts our creative process. How would you say social media impacts the creative process in particular? Well, um, I, I mean, I, I'm sure it's different for everybody. And I know artists who have quite varied experiences with it, so I don't want to overgeneralize. But I think the most typical situation I see is that people are given this weird feeling that they're like, just an inch away from success and they're always just like right at this thing but then eternally frustrated and a feeling that everybody else's success often exaggerated and fake is like in their face and their sense of uh, fear and longing kind of keeps them hooked <laughs> you know that's a that's a, a very you're describing my headspace <laughs> I, I feel I, I feel and I've been super lucky like I've, I've had you know a fair amount of I guess success or whatever but I feel that all the time. Yeah. And and I think there's a statistical distribution. It's not true for everybody. I think there are people of different feelings. And there might very well be people who would have felt that way before there was social media of course. At, at an earlier time. So I, I don't want to propose a universal, you know, declaration here, but I do think that there's tendencies and I see that why is that? Why do you what, what's causing that? The algorithms. I mean, the algorithms do it too. Um, so the way the algorithms work is they're trying um, – we have two sanitized terms that we use as our terms of art. One is engage and the other is influence. And <laughs> I, I prefer addict and manipulate, but at any rate, what we're talking – you know, the engagement part – is to take data from you in the form of when you click, what you hover on, um, um, in some cases recently, things like your facial expression while you're using your phone, all kinds, whatever's available. Mm -hmm. And then try to use that to figure out what gets you in order to get you more, you know. And it's the fight or flight expressions that are the most detectable by the algorithms where you see something that upsets you and then you click on it and you forward it or you criticize it and you're like really engaged. Say, that person's engaged. And the thing is, the cyclic nature of it, where once they find something that gets you, then you get more of that or something similar to it. Look, the way this works is these are very simplistic kind of crude correlation algorithms. So, Can you actually, because I think we all hear this word a lot nowadays, algorithm. Can you tell me what exactly is an algorithm? Um, an algorithm is a program. Um, it, it, it usually means, like, you could have two different programs that implement the same algorithm. So it's the more um, abstract, general way of thinking about a program that might be implemented in a variety of ways. So 
let's say you, you're sitting there writing a program. Many people have experienced writing a program. And let's pretend it's just a cat. You're trying to get the cat's attention. And it's really hard to keep a cat's attention, right? So you say, I'm going to tell the program to move this little laser pointer with a little robotic arm. <laughs> and then the cat follows the robotic arm, but then it leaves, you know, because cats get bored. And then it's like, okay, we need to, we're going to write this thing so that it'll be trying to get the attention of a million cats all over the world at once, or 10 million, or 100 million, or a billion. And so you can't personally be sitting there deciding what it'll do. So you need to have a program that decides what to do with that laser pointer once the cat is no longer engaged with it because the cat's gotten bored. So then you say, well, what you do is you start correlating against all the cats. Like what you say is, we're going to look at records of all the cats in the world and see what actions with that laser pointer got them re-engaged, like pointing it out in front of where they started to walk and then pulling them back or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so you yourself are no longer directly directing the laser pointer. What you're doing is you're getting this program to correlate millions of cats at once to figure out what will get them back. Mm -hmm. You do that with people too. You'll say, okay, we're going to take the records from 100 million people. <laughs> we're going to say mm – -hmm. We showed them this Ku Klux Klan video, and it got them to click more. So we're going to do more of that. And all, and the thing is that the algorithms are very crude at detecting. If somebody clicked on something or commented on it, the algorithm isn't making a judgment. Oh, it's because this person was angry or because the person was supportive. All it's saying is that this person was engaged by definition because they commented. So then let's send them more of that. Right. Now, the thing is, the other thing you have to understand is that 99% of new accounts on Google and Facebook are fake. So there's enormous armies of, of bots that bad actors put in to send data into the algorithms to sway the algorithms. That's another thing going on. It's a, it's mm. a cr crazy, stupid – whenever historians get around to describing our times, they're going to think we're the stupidest generation <laughs> ever. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but anyway, um, so, uh, so then – so this algorithm – is automatically using correlations, just pure statistics, to decide what to feed you to get you attentive. And so what that stuff tends to be is the stuff that excites your fight-or-flight response because that just makes you active in a way that the, the program can detect the most easily. And so that makes you gradually more and more paranoid and irritable by definition, because you're getting more and more stuff that you react to that way. And so gradually it just colors the world and you get more and more paranoia and irritability in politics and in culture and everywhere. So I see then how that connects to uh, political extremism. How does it connect to, from the point of view of a creative person, you described this feeling that resonated with me of feeling inadequate, of comparing myself to other people, of feeling like just on the edge of like, oh, I'm just about to do what I want to do or be who I want to be, but it's not quite there. How does this, these algorithms that you're describing, how does that... Uh, elicit that feeling. Now, this goes back to the science of behaviorism. And uh, B.F. Skinner, one of the famous behaviorists, was actually the first person to design a real-life uh, network experience in a pre-internet experimental network. And what he wanted to do was use the internet. It wasn't called that yet. This was in the 60s. But he wanted to use the eventual di digital network to program people to make us a perfect society with central control. <laughs> he was like an authoritarian kind wow. of ass wow. asshole. But, but, uh, but that does effectively happen because the, the program – 
is trying to get your maximum engagement. Now, occasionally other things happen. Some people will be, enca- be engaged because they're delighted or something, and that stuff happens too. But just more often, it's the fight or flight stuff, which turns into um, irritability and paranoia. So the more st- time you spend on the networks, the more your irritability and paranoia gets triggered. And remember, this is based on millions of people. So it's based on an average of what triggered millions, tens of millions, of hundreds of millions of people the most, which will tend to correlate a bit with you. And it's funny stuff. Like it might be that um, high heels in a shade of purple get people to click because for some reason it bothers them. But those people only do that if they also happen to own canaries. And so then suddenly if you own a canary, you'll be shown these high heels. And then for some weird reason that nobody will ever unravel and nobody even cares about it, it'll turn out to also upset you. It's it's just this Because right, no human actually understands the thing about the purple shoes and the canary. That's just a pattern that a computer found. Yeah. People don't even know it. I mean, there's there's so many millions of these correlations that nobody ever even becomes aware of them. It's just all this robotic correlation creation. But anyway, it teases out these things. It's, it finds the algorithm finds these things that get you And they're typically negative things. And so the more time you spend on it, the more kind of this little irritability and paranoid circuit starts being activated in your head. It was always there. It wasn't invented by the internet. It wasn't invented by these algorithms. But it just gets stimulated a little bit more. Sure. You could look at 100 years ago at, you know, you could read Letters to a Young Poet, one of my favorite books about the creative process, and you'll get a glimpse of the anxiety that a, a creative person feels. So it's not unique to this age or this technology. You're saying it's being amplified by this digital technology. Yeah, it's absolutely not unique. The internet is not creative at the present time. It it can only emphasize things. It's not in, it, This stuff is not inventive. All of this was always there. Insecurity was always there. All this stuff was there. Paranoia was always there. And irritability was always there. It just was a bit more balanced, you know. And if you look at the world, if you try to come up with an explanation for why are there suddenly these um, usually termed uh, right-wing populist leaders showing up everywhere – you can come up with all these explanations. You can say it's demographics or immigration or blah, 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 wealth inequality. But the thing is, none of those things apply to all the countries involved. Like it's happening in Brazil and Sweden at the same time. They have almost nothing in common except for Facebook. Mm. You know, so you, you, you do have this one thing that correlates with all the places in the world that are kind of being subsumed into this weird paranoid irritability circuit at the same time that does benefit authoritarians. And the trend had been moving away from authoritarianism. Facebook shows up, and now the whole world is moving into it. Yeah. To me, it's a pretty clear correlation. What about a a more traditional creative process? Like you, you're a musician, for example, or I'm, uh, you know, I like to make movies. How do you think that social media impacts these kinds of art forms or creative processes? Well, I feel like it's tended to bring um, kind of uh, insulting zingers and identity entrenchment to the fore in creative expression. And and that's because that brings about that fight or flight and the algorithms are yeah, it be... makes it makes everybody more clannish. So let. Uh, I'll explain the way I sometimes describe what I think is going on in people just at another another layer of depth here. Okay. I think um, if you look at animals, some species 
are pack animals. They move in societies, and others are singletons. They go off by themselves. But there are some who switch back and forth, with the most usual example in popular culture being the wolf. We can have the lone wolf or the wolf pack. Mm -hmm. And as I've talked to scientists who study wolves, the truth about wolves is more subtle than that, but we'll just go with our cartoon wolves for the moment in this conversation. Okay. <laughs> okay, so for, so cartoon wolves are either lone wolves or in wolf packs. And okay. so the theory I have is that people are like that, that people can function solo or they can function in groups. So when people function in groups, a different mentality takes hold. So when you're a lone wolf, your principal issue is surviving in your environment. So in a sense, you become a naturalist. Do I get shelter here? Can I get food here. You're dealing directly with physicality. When you are in a pack, your principal mentality is political. Who's above me in the pack? Who's below me? Who's my competition? Uh -huh. Who's the other pack we should hate? So there's a whole uh, sensibility that comes to the fore depending on which state you're in. Are you more naturalist or more a politician? Now, I don't think that there's an, anything absolutely better or worse about either mentality, but if you stay, if you spend all your time as a politician, I think that that's a problem, especially as an artist, because I think one of the jobs of an artist is to confront reality as directly as possible. Mm -hmm. um, I think if the artist is purely confronting politics, the art gets kind of fake and it gets into a closed loop. You know, and you're pandering you're just, if you're just making your art for other people and you're not also doing it for yourself. Right. Our right. Art, art should have something to do with helping people see something new or get to some new place or something. And you can only do that by confronting reality for real. You can't do it by reinforcing a groupthink, right? right? So I think that the ultimate effect of reinforcing the political head instead of the naturalist head is not good for art. And a lot of people are being forced in their political head. Um, it's, it's, I think, getting harder and harder to be uh, the lone wolf or the naturalist where you're confronting reality directly because everything is filtered through this. Like, if you say anything on Twitter, you're going to be part of one clan or another and you're going to get, um, you know, uh, dumped on or you're whatever. I mean, well, you know, Twitter. And, and yeah. so, so Twitter pulls people out of the real world and into the political world. Um, I've seen it hurt uh, journalists in particular. It's a particularly bad case, which I think they're becoming more self-aware about. But it also hits artists, you know. It, the um, example that, I, that comes to mind is if you're setting out to make a short film and on your mind is like, what would make the coolest short film? And you just dive into your head and you come up with, you know, something in your imagination and you're like, that just like really turns me on. I want, I want to see that on the screen. That's a very different thing than setting out to make a short film, knowing that your short film is going to be posted on YouTube and saying, like, what's going to get me the most views or the most subscribers on YouTube and mm -hmm. having that guide your imagination. And once again here, it's very dangerous to make universal statements. I think there are some, sure. things, that, there are some things on one, on YouTube that are wonderful that have gotten a lot of views. Absolutely. There's so an, I don't wanna, incredible I, art on YouTube. There's also right. incredible art on Instagram. There's, absolutely. Okay, but that said, the more typical thing that gets massive views and that YouTube will steer you to if you just let it recommend is some kind of weird politics head thing. And by politics, I don't necessarily mean Republicans, Democrats. I just mean it's like clannish. It's about person versus person instead of person versus reality. Mm -hmm. And so you'll start to see all kinds of weird, dark, paranoid stuff. Sometimes it's right-wing stuff. Sometimes it's just weird anti-science paranoia. Sometimes it's... 
um, just dark, creepy stuff that's hard. To, but but you, you, you'll be drawn there if you let it recommend. And I, I've done this test with lo- people all the time, and this is something that YouTube does. A lot of the most scene-moving graphics images these days are the, the little zingers attached to tweets. Um, and those are often mean-spirited, and they're all about some kind of uh, clan versus clan thing or some kind of power dynamics thing. And so um, you can't universalize, but you can generalize. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And it is good to acknowledge what, because we are being critical of these platforms right now. But they're, I'm repeating myself, but it's, I think it bears repeating. There's so much different stuff on YouTube, and a lot of it is, in, is very positive and, and beautiful. It's just the, the, the mechanics of the platform, I think, is what you're criticizing and the mechanics of the platform. It, it can be used to, to post cool stuff, but the, uh, the underlying sort of uh, momentum of it will drive towards more negativity because negativity gets more attention and more attention drives the advertising-driven Look, business model. Right? As an experiment, choose something on YouTube or Instagram that you find moving and and deep and powerful and real and then let the recommendation engine just move forward and follow 20 steps and see where it goes and then do that a few times and what you'll tend to see is it keeps on driving you it keeps on pulling you back into this world of total crap yeah um and that is a big problem and it explains a lot of what's going on in the world what 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 about people who because there's obviously there, there's so many people all over the world who love music who love to make music and if you broaden out beyond music and just any creativity whether it's people liking to write or liking to draw or whatever there's people with the creative urge arguably every human has this but you know or there's billions of us that have this urge but um not everybody, sadly enough, or for better or for worse, is going to be able to earn their full-time living making their art. Do you think that digital technology, or whether it's social media or some other digital tech, what is that doing for all those people who love being creative, who love making their art, whatever shape it takes, but aren't necessarily going to earn their living that way. Well, you know, there's a big picture answer to this, which is the one that I'm kind of hoping for that's very positive and very uh, optimistic. So that's the one I'll tell you. Great. It's not necessarily the way things will really turn out, though. So, Do you want to do the, the pessimistic one first and then the optimistic <laughs> one? The pessimistic one is that the creative impulse is universal and powerful, and it's being used to manipulate and rip off people in a way that it never has before at this scale. Mm-hmm. Apple will sell you a computer that's more expensive than the alternative ones on the dream that you're going to turn into a rock star. They call their programs things like rock star. Uh, you know, yeah. and and so there's this way in which, and there's always been a little bit of that, but not at this level, not at the amount of money that Apple can add. And I like I like Apple, by the way. I, I it's a long story. I have a long and emotional history with them from the founding, so it's not like I'm down on Apple. But I'm just pointing out that you have many billions of dollars going into this trillion dollar company from people who are having their creative feeling monetized or commoditized, you know, and, and turned into a product that they buy. And 
a, a little bit of that is okay. It's all a matter of balance. It's not like I expect humanity. If humanity ever ever became perfect, I'd try to find another planet. You know, that would be pretty boring. But the thing is, it's just it's just out of whack. It's out of balance. And and I think a lot of people feel it in their bones. There's something undignified about the present system. Um, but it's, it's interesting. And push back on me if 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 if, if you would. But like. To me, it seems, and I'm not trying to just defend Apple because I happen to be working for them right now, but uh, <laughs> I, to me, it seems like <laughs> Apple is is selling tools that allow people to be creative, whether it's it's a computer or like the, the software garage band that you might be talking about, or iMovie is like, I think, a really great piece of software that lets you edit video. That, to me, feels different than a company like Facebook, Instagram, Google, YouTube, which are very much dangling the carrot of, hey, if you build up enough likes and get enough followers, then you could be the next blah, blah, blah. And that happens for such a small fraction of people, but but Google makes money every time someone tries to do that. It It feels different to me. Okay, let me admit, I have a little bit of a brat in me, and I think part of me knew that this isn't, you're working for Apple, as you put it, <laughs> and so I'm going to like, okay, I'm going to rat on Apple. We can rat on Microsoft if you want. Um, you're absolutely <laughs> correct. No, like Instagram is like saying, oh, you're a professional model when you're not, and, and there's like this whole, there's this way that people are being sold an identity that is aspirational, but also hopeless, and that's that's... There's something wrong going on there. But by the way, in terms of doing stuff for Apple, I have, I can, uh, we, if you want to embarrass your Apple <laughs> overlords, I have some really funny <laughs> stories from the early days. Because I, <laughs> uh, for instance, uh, how, how, here's, here's the story. As it happens, I wrote the first uh, music editor on the Mac platform before it was released. No so, way. Wow. That's funny. Well, what happened? Okay. So the MIDI standard, which connects all the musical items together, was invented by this guy named Dave Smith, who makes synthesizers in his garage one weekend. And weirdly, I was there. And the reason I was there, can I tell this? It's a little convoluted. Can you handle it? Sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you can edit this out I'm, if it's terrible. Sure, but I'm right. into it. Like, I, I want to know what the origin of MIDI. And I didn't know that you had to do with it. You've done so much stuff. Well, no, I mean, no, I, this totally to me. did. I had nothing to do with it. Uh, this is Dave Smith's thing, really. Okay. But he had, there was a guy who worked with him and who was Buddhist, very seriously Buddhist, like very sincerely, somberly California Buddhist. And so I had had this thing where I always wanted to learn how to sing multiple notes at once, which is this thing that some Buddhist monks can do. Oh, the Tibetan throat singing? The Tibetan throat singing, yes. Uh-huh. And in those days, I think this must have been the very early 80s, um, it was when I first showed up in Silicon Valley, yeah. and I was like, you know, 20 or something. And I and I heard, oh, hey, there's this collection of Tibetan monks coming to this house up on Skyline <laughs> Boulevard. And it were, you, maybe, I was said, okay, I'm going to go there. And I like, I didn't know if, if maybe they could teach me to sing. And so I show up and say, hey, I want to learn to sing this thing. And, and I think it was poorly translated by our, our, the person – who was translating? I said, "Okay, well, put on these robes." And so, like, there I am in, with a with a buddy of mine in saffron robes. I say, "Okay, now you have to learn these chants." And uh-huh. so we're in this thing all night, and I'm like, "Damn, this is like the the most rigorous music lesson I've ever gotten." When do we start <laughs> singing? You know. And in the morning, they said, "Okay, congratulations." I said, "But where's the lesson?" I said, "No, no, you've been converted to Tibetan Buddhism." Yeah. <laughs> and I, had, I had no idea. And so then, I just wanted to sing more than one note at the same time. <laughs> 
And so then one of the people who was there was then bugging me every week, calling me and saying, hey, are you saying your refuge prayers? I'm like, no, man, you know, I, I, I'm Jewish. I did the guilt thing there, so I don't really need to do it with the Tibetans. I, I got it. got it covered. We're all set. Uh, but then he said, but he was like, no, man, I'm going to give you. And so I actually went to meet him to get these refuge prayers at the garage where Mitty was invented. So that's. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and so, so my girlfriend at the time had a roommate who had gone to college with Steve Jobs and was Apple's first employee. His name was Daniel Kotke. And I think at this point I can divulge this. He used to get so mad at Steve, Steve Jobs, that he would take like the prototype Mac, which at that time was wire-wrapped, so it wasn't even soldered yet, and he'd stick it visible to the universe on the back of his motorcycle. And and, and Steve was like a secrecy fiend, like nobody will know about this, you know. And he would just drive up on this driveway and saying, okay, here's this thing we're building. We're like, oh, yeah, 68,000 trip, you know, we really <laughs> Okay, uh-huh. fine. That that's all good. And so, I took one of these wire wrapped Mac uh, Macs uh, in the early eighties. Say, hey, we need to make a MIDI interface for this. So Dan made a little hardware MIDI interface, and then uh, the guy who wrote the operating system, the first Mac operating system, Andy Hertzfeld said, "Oh, hey, I'll write a driver for it." And just that night, we made the first MIDI interface for Mac. <laughs> And then I stayed up all night, and I made an, a MIDI editor. And then, like, it was the first kind of prototype of the familiar music editor now. And so we were playing with it for wow. days and weeks, and it was, like, really cool. And I made uh, birthday music for Dan with it. And then we're like, we should show this to Steve. And, like, no, Steve will, you know, <laughs> something horrible will happen. There'll be, like, a, nu- <laughs> a nuclear explosion in Cupertino. So he didn't. he never knew about it. Wow. And anyway, that was the first, <laughs> the the first, first music editor. editor on a Mac. Yeah. Okay. That wow. is the story, man. From that to GarageBand on an iPhone. <laughs> it's still doing basically the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, but the the pessimistic version of how, we talked, we were, we were asking the question, for people who feel that creative urge, might or might not have that be their financial livelihood? What does digital oh, tech okay, do yeah. for them? All right, I want to give you a really high-level zoom on this, okay? So, like long-termism, you mean? Like, Yeah, yeah. All right. So, look, um, as a civilization gets more advanced, we should expect its economy to climb Maslow's pyramid. Okay, so that means um, when, when you have a civilization starting out like 10,000 years ago or something, the, the basic thing is can people not starve? <laughs> You know, right, can, right. can you survive a lightning storm? And then uh, Abraham Maslow suggested this idea that as you meet one level of basic needs, then a next layer appears, then a next layer where what used to be unimaginable luxuries are now needs. So as soon as you cannot starve, then you actually need food that won't make you sick. As soon as you can get food that won't make you sick, then uh, you want to have food consistently. As soon as you can have food consistently, maybe you want good food. All of a sudden, you have like cuisines and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So you climb up to become more aesthetic. Aesthetics is a sign of success. If you can afford to be aesthetic, you are being more successful. Mm -hmm. Our current society has gigantic industries based on taste based on subjectivity. And some of the ones I'll mention are professional sports, travel, cosmetics, uh, entertainment, and, you know, so many of these. And these are giant sectors that are not just raw, you know, transportation and heating and air conditioning, you know, (laughs) these Mm -hmm. are, although air conditioning arguably belongs on the list, I suppose. Of aesthetics. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
All right. So anyway, so um, back to this idea of Maslow's hierarchy. So in the future, as our technology gets better and better, we should climb even higher, and there should be whole new industries that are aesthetic. Now, if you imagine this process approaching some sort of completion level, that would be where robots can do all the work, <laughs> and uh, right. and there's algorithms all over the place. Uh, people don't have to toil. What does that look like? Well, it should be an entire economy in which basic needs are kind of automatic, and everything is about aesthetics. It should be an entirely aesthetic economy at that point. Right, okay. And so at that point, you have this very interesting crossroads. I think So I think I see the connection here. At that point, you're not making music for a living because no one's doing anything for a living. No one has to make a living. All those needs are met. We're all just doing whatever we want to do for the aesthetic pleasure of it. Ah, well, see, no, this, it's not so simple. If only it were so simple. Okay. So here's the question. If you live in a world of plenty, where robots do everything, there's enough energy because we fixed our energy cycle, everything basically works, all our needs are met, is everybody starving and impoverished because they're unemployed? Is everybody a ward of the state where they're dependent on welfare of some kind? Or does everybody make their living from an aesthetic economy? Those are the three options. Wait. The first option was everyone's starving. How would that be if there were robots taking care of everyone's needs? Well, that's already happening. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, already, we're already displacing workers because computers. So right now, more and more jobs are doing the last mile of a computer thing where, for instance, uh, Facebook can almost moderate the hate in the, in the chat room, but not quite. So they hire people to be moderators and the people themselves go crazy. But that's like a last mile <laughs> of AI kind of job. Okay. Very soon, we're going to be doing that to the truck drivers and to the farm workers. And so you're going to start to have this economy where people are more and more marginalized by automation at some point. And they'll, and they'll say, well, no, there's new kinds of work. But that new kind of work will be more downstream and regimented from some big computer. Like a, an old-fashioned taxi driver could put a kid through college and an Uber driver can't. Typically, a few can, but but it's very rare. Right. And, and, and so the thing is, you get further and further away from economic value as automation rises, and then what happens? And so, um, so the first of these three scenarios is one of them is this dystopian, very stratified world where all the wealth is in the hands of a few and most people are out of a job and poor and starving yourself. <laughs> That's option one. Option two is basic income, universal basic income. The problem I have with the basic income is very simple. Um, whenever you have a central authority that everybody's dependent on, that central authority becomes corrupted because it's too much concentrated power. Yeah. That's uh, that's like um, communism in the exactly the USSR. Yeah. So you might start with Bolsheviks, but then you get Stalinists eventually. Right. Okay. And whatever you think of the Bolsheviks, the Stalinists are worse and they always show up. Yeah. And whenever you have a single source that everybody depends on, you always end up with that. And that, that, that's just a universal in human history. And I don't see why it's going to be different this time just because it starts with nerds. You know, it, it, it started with nerds in Russia, honestly. So, right. so that's and that's your second scenario, which you called everyone's a ward of a state. Is that sort of yeah, which is central <laughs> planning? Uh, yeah, that, better known as authoritarianism. People who like it call it a universal basic income. I don't like it. I just don't trust it. I, and there, I can I have other more nerdy arguments against it. But anyway, all okay. right. But th let's look at the third. Let's look at the third um, option. Okay. There's a third option, which would be something new. 
that would be facilitated by the existence of the internet and digital technology, which is a universal market where people buy and sell aesthetic value. And this one interests me a great deal because we've traditionally thought of the creative industries being rather limited. So, for instance, if you're a gardener, that's something you do for yourself. It's a hobby. There are very few people. There might be a few people who are specialty gardeners who are hired to, you know, uh, landscape an estate or something. But for the most part, that's something that's a hobby. But imagine this, a future where there are gardening robots that go out there and do your topiary perfectly and and keep your orchids alive and whatever it is. Yeah. But the thing is. Those robots are constantly being reprogrammed by collectives of people who are good gardeners coming up with cool ideas that are transferred to the robots program. So mm-hmm. you might be a member of a gardener's union and you start getting a stipend because the union is supplying new ideas to the whole world of gardening robots. And each person starts to develop a specialty as a data source for some sort of robot or another. And indeed, people start collecting more and more of these and start collecting a zillion little tiny streams of royalties for different kinds of data they produced over time. That is a possible future economy. It sounds very alien to us, but the math of it does work out. And that seems to me to be the most interesting of the three options. Let me give you a concrete present-day example to illustrate how this works, because I realize this might sound just incredibly alien and and unlikely and hard well, to believe. Well, sci-fi. It does sound like sci-fi, yeah. All right, it shouldn't. All right, here, let me give you a very concrete example. Okay. There's a profession called being a translator, where you, you take a book and you translate it from English to French or something, right? Okay. yeah. Those people have seen their livelihoods destroyed, just like uh, recording musicians investigative journalists, professional photographers, and so on. All the people Google Translate. Exactly. Now, the thing is, Google Translate, and uh, we do it at Microsoft too, Bing Translate, these translator programs have to be freshened every day with new phrase examples. The language is alive. Every single day there's news, there are public events, or, you know, events that become part of our conversation. There are new, there are new, memes and tropes and jokes and uh, expressions and all, all, all this stuff. And so you need to have new phrase examples translated between each language pair every single day by the tens of millions. And so where does that come from? Do we hire factories of people? No. We steal. We steal the stuff. We steal it from people who don't know that they're doing it. We go around and we find tens of millions of people who happen to be translating anyway because they have Uh, Some of them are on social media and have family members who speak different languages. Some of them are amateur captioners for the day's TV shows. There are all kinds of people who do this. We steal their stuff. We incorporate it. And then that's what becomes the the supposed uh, giant brain that stands by itself. If you open the curtain behind the giant brain that's doing your translations and putting you out of work, it's still dependent on people who translate every single day. So there's something terribly wrong there. We have this fiction that AI stands apart and isn't made of people. And then the actual people are getting paid less and less and losing their jobs. And that's spiritually a crime, (laughs) you know, to tell somebody, you're a buggy whip. You're no longer needed because we have a giant electronic brain. You're obsolete. When in fact, we need them, but we're just stealing from them and not being honest about it. It really bothers me. And so 
if you take that observation and you realize it, it, it'll generalize in the future to gardening robots and to every other kind of AI that depends on constant data, which AI typically does, you can imagine a future in which the more automation there is, actually the more work there is instead of less, because then there are new kinds of jobs of filling that automation with new data. And you might say, well, why does the data have to be new? It's because as the economy becomes more advanced, it becomes more aesthetic. So there'll be a constant demand for aesthetic refresh, and then that becomes the economy. So are you saying then that in in this future, and who knows how far into the future we're talking about, but in this future, the the people who we were mentioning who have that creative urge inside them – uh, who might not be making a living doing their creative thing today, you think that in the future there will be a path, if we're living this third scenario, for everybody to make a living doing their creative aesthetic thing. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> and I'm sure it won't work out perfectly neatly, but I think on the whole it could work out. I think on the whole there's... A lot of value, a lot of genius, a lot of creative activity that's important and substantial that's kind of off the books now in the way that women's work used to be off the books or the work of slaves or whatever. I think a lot of what holds the world together in an economy that's connected digitally could be valued. And I know a lot of people might hear that and say, oh, no, it's just too much capitalism and everything will be all about money and everything. But the thing is, it if it becomes fine-grained and fluid, it might actually be a new kind of capitalism that's actually more creative and more interesting. At least that's what I hope. And like I say, I do really think we have to choose between three outcomes here of um, poverty, dependency, or some new kind of economy based on creativity. And so far, the economy based on creativity has been entirely captured by the central computers. Right now, I mean, YouTube was built on the backs of musicians who weren't paid, period. You know? Well, explain that. How do you mean? Well, YouTube, YouTube got its rise because you could hear music on it and the musicians didn't get royalties from it for years and years. And even to this day, it's still pretty rough. I mean, um, I, I'm not sure if that's, this is true this year. Last year, I believe musicians made more money from vinyl than from streaming in the U.S. Wow. And meanwhile, the tech companies are trillion-dollar companies. I mean, you have the biggest companies in the world and in history, and they've essentially, leaving aside Apple, who we adore, but (laughs) let's talk about (laughs) Facebook and Google. Um, These companies essentially provide um, entertainment without having to pay the artists who it came from until very recently and only in special cases. I want to change the subject and talk about something that I, I think is really interesting and that you are an expert in, in terms of the digital era, which is virtual reality, which you've mm-hmm. touched on. Virtual reality now, I think, is currently falling victim to having had so much uh, hype and buzz around it a few years ago. I know a lot of people in my circles are like, oh, that was a fad. And just like blockchain is the fad now. And it's, you know, it's like, that's that and whatever. Um, But I, uh, perhaps through friendship with you, but I've always sort of had a a fascination with VR ever since a long time ago. I like 
saw the movie The Lawnmower Man, and I actually. Oh no! Yeah, yeah, like, no! Try. <laughs> oh god! No! Was that the wrong movie to mention? Jeez, I didn't know you'd have such a reaction. Anyway, well, I mean, but, that one was The Lawnmower Man. In theory, is about me and my old company, with uh, my character being played by a young uh, Pierce Brosnan. Oh Jesus! I didn't even know that. Okay. Well, oh sorry. yeah, and I mean that was a theory of it, and uh, I just I just they- was fascinated by seeing someone hooked up to a machine like that, and and kind of interfacing with what looked like a video game in a suit. It was just the first time I'd ever seen oh, that yeah. before when well, I was you know, like 12 years old. The equipment in Lawnmower Man was real. That was the actual stuff we sold at the time. That was that was the authentic era um, VR equipment. That's so funny. So uh, here's a quiz for you. Okay. The, the uh, headset that you saw in the Lawnmower Man, <laughs> which yeah. would have been shot Something like maybe 1990 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I auditioned um, for that goddamn part when I was whatever 11. Didn't get it. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, that would have been, <laughs> been so funny if you. I know, hilarious. Right? Then, then we would have. Yeah. Well, at any rate, what was that product called? The very first commercial VR headset. Oh fuck! I read Dawn of New Everything, which is your book, where this information would reside, but I don't remember the exact name of the model of the headset. It was it was called the iPhone, but with E Y E. Oh right, you told me. I mean, I yeah. And that. so when when uh, when Apple uh, started to make a phone, so I can't say that for sure it was a reference, but I do know some of the people who were. It was originally this thing called the iPod that came in from another. I forget. They they hired somebody who brought the iPod to them, and then. If People call me and say, hey, we're thinking of calling this visual phone an iPhone. And so, at least for some of the people, it was a tribute to the original uh, VR headset. That's really and, funny. And kind of forward-looking where this idea of a visual phone that you could touch was part of the same stream as virtual reality of eventually moving towards some kind of a more, you know, vivid, interactive, uh, fun kind of dig- digital thing. So, okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I've, so, I've heard you talk about VR in such a way that and, – and especially – in terms of the creative process, like tell me about what you envision in the future. How might VR or VR-like technology be used by creative people to do creative things? Oh God! Well, look, um, the big transition in the future that either will or will not happen that determines the future of VR is whether you can get to the point where you can improvise the content and the nature of VR in the same way that we're talking now, where you can just make it. And there's one person in my lab now who's gotten so fast at making VR that I think I might be witnessing the first of a new species who can do this. This person's name is M, just the letter. It sounds like something in a James Bond movie. But anyway, <laughs> M, M can kind of improvise in a virtual world and just start making stuff uh, about What do you fast. mean making stuff? What, what are they making? Uh, they're um, using interfaces with such facility that they can just like, oh, here's a house. Uh, here's a dial that I'll be able to turn. Here's a clarinet. And just like. Like almost so fast, it's almost like watching a, a really skilled magician work so fast you can barely believe it or trying to watch a really skillful virtuosic musician and you can't really quite even follow their fingers. What are and, the tools? Are they writing code? What, what's, what's No, 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 happening? no. This is inside VR. So you have uh, hand tracking and different interfaces that allow you to create stuff inside VR. Is it like drawing? It's a mixture of drawing and code. It's like sculpting and coding and uh, everything else together. Wow. 
And so we're playing around with tools to facilitate this. This is my dream, that you could just be in there. It's conscious dreaming. It's like talking, except you're making reality instead of words, right? And so <laughs> the question is, can people do it? Can we make tools that make it possible? In the 80s, I talked about it as um, a waking state conscious form of shared lucid dreaming. <laughs> yeah. <Sounds laughs> so the idea is like, so you're like in lucid dreaming, you can just make up the dream. And so you should be able to make up what's in virtual reality while you're experiencing virtual reality. It should be, it shouldn't be like somebody canned this program experience for you, like in a current game. Then you go in and you go through the paces of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, boring. Like what you should be making up the stuff while you're there. And then this is in the old days, in the 80s, when I was young, uh, I used to talk about it as uh, post-symbolic communication, this idea that you're... Say it again, post-symbolic communication? Yeah. So when we talk right now, we're using words which are symbols. So Mm -hmm. the the idea is that when you're a little baby, um, you gradually discover that you're not Lord of the Universe. Everything you imagine isn't real. You're actually this horrible little weak, pink, wet thing. (laughs) You know, and and the one little part of the universe you can control is your tongue and your lips and your fingertips. And then you learn gradually that you can use those little parts you can control as fast as you think and feel to refer to all the stuff you don't have the power to create directly. And that's language. And that becomes right. art, symbols, signs, everything, everything that's a human artifact that means something. But what if you could be in a world where you actually could create everything in the world as fast as you think and feel? Where and, and so you transfer from your fingers and your lips through software interfaces, and you can create anything. You can suddenly create um, – Oh, like when I was in my 20s, I used to talk about, you'll you'll create giant crystal dragons flying over the city, whatever. I used to just make up all this crazy stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I can do that with words very easily, but can you do it in virtual reality? Well, M is kind of getting there. Yeah, you know, I'm starting. So that's something, a new thing. And it might be one of these things where it's a generational thing. There might be a generation born with more people like M who can really improvise in VR Mm-hmm. And then when those people get together and they have reality conversations where they're spinning the whole content of the experience and the dynamics, the programming, the interactivity of it all the time, that becomes something very different and very interesting. And and that becomes the giant shared lucid dream. Uh, in the earliest days, a lot of the people in our old lab who believed in this were some of the very first people at Burning Man. And a lot of the original idea <laughs> for Burning Man was to try to create a simulation of what this would be like someday. So Burning, in, in part, Burning Man was an early experiment to try to create a sort of a live, improvised theater version of what VR might be like. A simulation of a simulation is what we used to call it. <laughs> right. I- <laughs> <laughs> where, where my mind goes to is is the part where you were doing it together with other people because this is mm-hmm. something you know I I spent a lot of focus on with hit record is being creative and collaborative with other people who are you're not in the same room as them they might be somewhere totally else on the planet but you can write something together or someone might write something and someone else might draw something based on that writing and you can have these. Uh, almost conversations, but more collaborations of art making together through digital technology. Um, But it is still a little bit hard nowadays, and it doesn't happen in real time. It happens like, I'll write something, and then later that day, someone else might draw it, and then maybe two days later, someone else might say, you know, record themselves saying it out loud. Or Sometimes it, it can take weeks or months to 
to all make something together because you're posting things and then someone else is finding it later and then, you know, sort of remixing that and going from there. Whereas the environment you're describing of uh, here's M and here's, you know, four other collaborators or 4,000 other collaborators and they're all just kind of doing this creative thing together in real time, that that really does sound like unprecedented uh, and and just a kind of art that i i really want to see happen and i want to get to i want to get to do that you know i've dreamed about what this might be like every night for the last 40 years and are you exaggerating no that's what you dream about every night every night i go to bed thinking about it yeah it might not be possible. It might never happen. Um, it'll be a lot of work. It's a. This is a major project. It's a centuries-long project of craft building and culture building. But, yeah, I, I dream about it all the time. I, I, yeah, I mean, and I, I don't know if I know anything about it. You know, I, I really don't. But I, I, I just think of it as a wonderful – it gives me a feeling of a trajectory for civilization that I, I like a lot. I, a lot of the ideas of where we're going are either terrible and scary and fearsome or horrible or, or um, leave me kind of dry, you know, a lot. Of, and I have to note, science fiction is just almost universally pessimistic lately. And yep. this sort of thing of, of treating the ability to communicate in new ways and to create art in new ways and to be creative in new ways and that if that's our frontier rather than – learning how to go faster than light or in addition to or something. Mm -hmm. It's just such a more hopeful and interesting future. It's a future without bounds because you could always get more creative. This vision of just getting more and more communicative and creative and um, that really turns me on. It makes it gives me a feeling of optimism about the future. I love that. That's that's the future I want. I know, isn't it better? It would be so cool. <laughs> Yeah. I'm just, God, what if you'd actually gotten that part in Lawnmower Man? That would have been so weird. <laughs> I love this conversation, man. I could keep <laughs> going with you for, for days and days. Um, you know, the this question from Chrissy Regler uh, that we've been discussing this whole time of how do you feel the digital era has changed our creative process. Chrissy, you know, asked this question on the internet and we get a, a bunch of different questions. Some of them can lead to a whole conversation. Some of them are just interesting one-offs that, and so I've, I've been at the end of these kind of wrapping up with an off topic question. Sure. Sure. All right. So I think this is a really good off topic question. I, when I, when I saw it, I was like, Oh, I want to ask Jaron that. Um, so this comes from Yusuri Yu from Brooklyn, New York. The question is, do you think it's better to believe things or doubt things? Mm. In order to doubt something, mechanically, you have to doubt it on some for some reason, you have to have some structure in which the doubt can even be expressed. And so, therefore, there's belief hidden inside of every doubt. However, in order to believe something, you can be a ninny. So, therefore, <laughs> doubt is more important. I knew you would have a good answer to that question. 
<laughs> Man, thank you so, so much for doing this. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that is our show. Thanks so much for listening. Big thanks to our episode's guest, Jaron Lanier. Thank you to the folks who asked this week's questions. Chrissy Regler. You can find her on the internet at Queen of Jam. And Yusuri Yu. You can find on the internet at U-S-S-U-R-I. If you want to ask a question that can inspire one of these episodes, you can email creativeprocessing at hitrecord.org. Or you can ask the question on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and use the hashtag creativeprocessing. And if you want to do something more than ask a question, uh, if you want to get creative, check out Hit Record. We are uh, making all kinds of collaborative art inspired by the ideas in these conversations. People have been drawing, people have been writing stories, all kinds of different things. That uh, I love getting that feedback of seeing uh, what kind of art these conversations can inspire. Uh, so if you want to dive in, you can go to hitrecord.org slash creativeprocessing. The producers of the Creative Processing Podcast are Lexi Tankersley and Raymond Way, audio produced by Keir Schmidt. Thanks to Cadence 13 and everyone at the Hit Record office. And of course, most of all, thanks to you for listening. See you next week. <laughs>